We're going to start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Dear Lord, we thank you for your countless gifts, especially the gift of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of this time this evening for us to gather as a parish, to spend some time together and question and answer, and always to strive to know you better, to know your will for us, and to strive to grow in holiness each and every day. We ask you to be with us tonight to guide our conversations, and we ask this in particular through the intercession of our Blessed Mother, Mary, Mother of the Church, as we pray. Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus. Immaculate heart of Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, I'm going to let Michael kind of describe how everything is going to work. And as I said before, you know, we've never done this before, so... Uh, We'll see how it goes, and we will have an intermission, and if we need to make any adjustments, we will. Um, you may have seen, and you know, we, we tried to do this back in September, but had several things happen that just made it impossible, one of which was a hurricane. So, um, you know, just that's kind of the way that went, and we had many questions already submitted. And if you haven't seen it yet, I'd recommend maybe checking it out, but Michael and I recorded in my office just uh, going back and forth with, the, I think, the 15 questions that had been submitted before. And it took us about an hour and a half to get through 15 questions because I talked too much. So um, we're going to kind of follow some of that format tonight, I think. And part of the online aspect is so, you know, if there's a question, you can see what's already been asked. If you like that, you just thumbs up it so we don't have to worry about... Um, you know, five different people essentially asking the same question. But we'll see how that goes. We have the paper over here, and um, Michael and I will kind of go back and forth. Thanks, Father. I appreciate it. And for all of you at home viewing on Facebook Live, I think we're up to seven people viewing live right now. <laughs> for all those viewing live, you can also participate by going to Slido, S-L-I-D-O dot com, um, and typing in our event code SH. CC, event code SHCC, and you can ask questions at home, and then um, we'll see the questions as they pop up as well. So, Father, are you ready to go ahead and get started? Yes, sir. Perfect. So, first question for you. It's a pretty good one, by the way. Uh, can you explain the concept of offering it up and the theology behind it? So, I know me and my friends coming to a Catholic school, this was kind of our running joke of, come on, man, you can do it. Just offer it up. Offered for the babies, offered for the souls in purgatory. You got this, man. And I'm sure you had that plenty at seminary as well. Sure. Um, I wonder if you can go ahead and uh, explain that to us. Well, sure. I'm going to do my best. And I'll just, well, I'll start with, uh, I guess, just sort of to set the stage on all of these questions. Um, I'll do my best. And uh, one of the nicest things about seminaries, they always tell us, it's like, even if you don't know the answer on things, they want to make sure that we know where to look. Uh, all I have up here is my bravery, which is my prayer book in the Magnificat, which isn't going to completely get me through everything tonight. But um, just, you know, I'm, and I'm hoping that maybe we get to do this again. So if anybody needs a follow-up after any of these, we'll go for it. But as far as the offering up question, the first thing that pops into my mind was I remember uh, my second year as a seminarian of the Diocese of Charlotte, 
I was assigned at St. Mary's in Silva, which is way out west. It's in the same town as Western North Carolina University. And early on, uh, the, the pastor, Father Ray Williams, and I and some of the parishioners got to go on a camping trip. And they set up a, a tent for Father and I, which they called the rectory, which was really nice. And, you know, I, I really hadn't been camping that much, especially not in North Carolina. It was one of those deals where it's like you put everything on your back, and you hike out to the middle of nowhere, and you camp out there, and you have to raise stuff up so the bears don't get to it. And I remember probably after about 10 minutes of being in my sleeping bag, I realized that the lower half of my body was basically submerged in water. And I said to Father, I'm like, uh, Father, just, um, I think we might have to fix something. Um, like my legs are pretty much underwater. And he said, offer it up and shut up. <laughs> and, you know, it was just, it was such a motivational moment to really move on through. Um, and I, I appreciate it now. Eventually we got it worked out. But, it's, you know, like with, with offering it up, uh, just to relate it right away to the gospel for this coming Sunday. So have it tomorrow evening, and then on Sunday itself. It's the gospel of the widow who puts in the two coins, you know, all she has. And the thing that blows me away, this is kind of a preview for my homily for this Sunday, so way to go, folks at home, there it is. Um, but Jesus, you know, says to the apostles, like points out to her that she's giving all she's got. And, you know, she's put in more than everybody else, even though those two coins really, you know, economically speaking, are worth much. But sees the sacrifice that she's making. The thing that, that amazes me in that is Jesus doesn't like run over and like say, hey, everybody, look. I mean, he says it to the apostles. But he doesn't actually say it to her. And so often in our lives, we all have crosses to bear. And Jesus tells us many times, if we're going to be his disciples, we have to deny ourselves, take up our crosses daily, and follow him. And the whole aspect of offering it up is realizing that when those call them opportunities of suffering come, we don't run away from them. You know, we embrace them and bear them in union with the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. And it's the amazing thing about our faith is that we don't try to explain away suffering as though, you know, like all reality doesn't actually have meaning or, um, you know, you just have to just have to bear it. You know, just get to, no, I mean, you know, it's funny, G.K. Chesterton talks a little bit about this, and I'm sure I'll reference him why, by like grinning and bearing it, right? Like just grin and bear it. You still have to grin, you know, on a certain level. We have all these opportunities in our life with these crosses, as long as we embrace that suffering, unify it to the sacrifice of Christ. Not everybody in the world's going to notice. It's a lot like the widow's might. Not every sacrifice you put up with, you know, the rock in your shoe, the fact that it was a miserable day today, maybe you, you felt miserable, but to still, in the midst of that, not be short and nasty to the person who's checking you out at Food Lion, you know, just, just if you don't feel like it, we still say, hey, how you doing? Offering those things up and unifying that to the sacrifice of Christ. Does that sound like, you know, your St. Teresa of Avila setting the world on fire? Well, Everybody's going to notice you in the same way they notice St. Teresa of Avila. But when you think about that ability to offer up that little thing that you don't want to do right now, or, you know, Michael annoys me in the office and I want to say something sarcastic, but I hold back, you know? That little bit, you know, that little bit of, of offering when you don't want to, 
It's that opportunity to grow in holiness. And the beautiful thing is, and I think the crucifix is right behind us, you know, Jesus showed us the way. The amazing thing in our faith is that with all of these things, it's not just disembodied teaching, it was him showing it to us all the way. And that's the other thing about the gospel for this weekend, the seeing what the widow is doing comes right before the passion. Um, Jesus lays it all out there, and we as his disciples are called to do the same thing. And as we know, there is a profound meaning and relevance and beauty that comes from bearing that suffering in union with the sacrifice of Christ. Thanks, Father, for being kind to me. I'm sorry I'm not always as kind to you, offering up my sacrifices and offering up my sarcasm. You're going to need to change. <laughs> I won't change, Father, and I will be going to a different preacher for confession. <laughs> So the next question, um, actually we have two that kind of tie together, so um, we probably kind of join them together for your sake, Father. Um, so the first one, how did the Mass evolve from apostolic times to the format that we now know? And then the second question that goes very closely with that, how was the format of the Mass established? I understand the significance of the Last Supper, but who determined the rest? So really, I guess the question boils down to, what happened from the Last Supper till now? How did the Mass change? How did it evolve? And how, why do we celebrate the Mass as we do today, um, after 2,000 years of tradition? That's a really good question that, um, I'll just say on a certain level, I mean, there are certainly people who can answer this a lot better than me. You know, our former parochial vicar, Father Noah Carter, has an advanced degree in liturgical studies. And uh, Father Bittner from our diocese wrote a book called Understanding the Mass, which is a wonderful book. I think um, Alice von Hildebrand wrote a, a foreword to that book, actually. It's, it's very much well worth reading. Fun fact, Father Bittner and I are from the same old parish. But if you want a lot on Understanding the Mass, I highly recommend his book on that. The thing that I would say, because um, I'm not going to have like a real perfect, explicit answer on exactly how we got to where we are today. But, you know, when you think about it, Jesus promising to remain with us until the end of the ages, right? Like, he's always there. It's not as though it's like, you know, I'm going up to heaven, you guys hang in there until I come back, and that's the end. No, he established the church to hand this on to us, to hand on to us, you know, the Eucharist, to hand on to us the Mass. Um, and throughout the centuries, I mean, obviously, as the circumstances in which the disciples of Christ, in which eventually as they became known first in Antioch and other places as Christians, you know, over time, uh, those things are bound to develop as you move through time. And of course, it's development. It's not some sort of a radical change. You know, early on, the disciples, you know, first, you know, they're still going to synagogues. Eventually, they're in house churches. Then comes the time of Constantine, and they're able to break out into the public scene. And all of a sudden, their basilica is being built, and they're able to be in big churches. But ultimately, everything is essentially tied back to, of course, the Last Supper, you know, in which you know, we, we participate. It's a sort of anamnesis that, you know, remembering the, the, I'm trying to think of the exact word, like, participating in the passion, presenting, representing, yeah, the, the participating in the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and giving himself to us. Um, 
every time we're a mass. And I'll just tell you, I feel bad. I'm being all over the place on this. And I'll probably be tangential and everything else. But one of my favorite uh, devotional things is I always take off my watch for mass. Uh, you know, I never wear him again wear a watch, but I won't wear it at Mass because, essentially, it's this reminder that, you know, we're participating in what happened when Jesus Christ really and truly gave us himself, you know, died for us on the cross, and provided this way in which we still get to actually participate in that. I mean, literally, every single day of the year, except for on Good Friday, but the only reason for that is because from Holy Thursday to the Easter Vigil, it's as though the Mass is stretched out. I mean, every other day, like this morning, we had Mass that lasted about, I think about 34 minutes, because we had a Gloria, and it's a feast day, it took a little bit longer, it normally takes about 30 minutes on a day of daily Mass. You know, a normal Sunday is an hour, although to be fair here at Sacred Heart, I think it take about an hour and ten, sorry about that, but that's, you know, the way that it kind of works. You know, so everything is kind of condensed down into that particular time. With Holy Week, it's beautiful because that's it's stretched out so that we get the opportunity to celebrate the Mass of the Lord's Supper, to represent, to participate in you know the death of Christ on Good Friday, to wait in that eager anticipation all day on Holy Saturday, which it's the already but not yet, and Jesus in the tomb, and then of course the Mother of all liturgies, as it says in the rites on uh, the Easter Vigil on, on that evening. So it's like, so everything is stretched back out for the, the Last Supper, the Passion, the Death, the Resurrection, the Paschal Mystery. We get to experience it in that bigger way. The way that's been celebrated with the particulars, you know, it's a little bit different um, in different rites in different parts of the world. There have been various councils over the centuries, um, in particular the Council of Trent, the kind of regularized and normalized the rites of the Mass. And then, of course, we had Sacrosanctum Concilium, one of the documents from the Second Vatican Council that, you know, adapted or developed, changed some of the rites, you know, back in, what was that, 1962? Uh, and so, you know, with time, there are developments in the way that it's done, you know, especially as, you know, Christianity moves from, essentially, the Mediterranean to the entire world various languages and some different things. However, we're all still united in that same Eucharist, in that same participation. And so in the same way, like I said, I take off my watch because we're united to that same last summer. Um, the same thing, it's like we're united in space, too. I mean, uh, you know, across the continents, we are all you know, one in the body of Christ. And so... And there's specific, specific, you know, cultural differences over time. And that's part of the, the beauty of the unity and the diversity of the church in the best sense of the term. Um, and the Catholicism that we have and this universality rooted in the unity of Christ. And so I mean, to study that development over time is a beautiful thing. I haven't gotten to do as much of that as I would like. But um, as I said, like understanding the Mass by Father Bittner and I'm sure Father Carter would always be happy to tell you a whole lot about the history of the as well. And I think that representing is important because it's not a representation. You know, we're not just representing what Christ did. It's making a re-present. We're actually being, we're actually, as you said, transcending space and time and becoming present at the 
mass that Christ first performed, which is interesting. Um, and it's always beautiful to think about at mass. And actually, the book that you referenced by Father Bittner, I actually read that book. And I think this was the first day my wife ever questioned if she actually married the right guy. Because I actually read that book on the Seven Mile Beach in the Grand Caymans on my honeymoon. <laughs> And that shows kind of how much of a nerd that I am. That was my honeymoon read on the beach in the Grand Cayman Islands. True story. That's what I read. Uh, good book, though. You are a nerd, and I appreciate that. But um, I just want to say, too, you know, I, as far as a, you know, re-presenting as opposed to just like a representation or just a mere symbol, one of my favorite quotes uh, is from Flannery O'Connor, that famous uh, author from Georgia, uh, Catholic author, really told it as it is in so many ways. And she was at a party with a lot of, you know, just well-to-do authors of the time. And someone said, oh yes, the Eucharist, isn't it a wonderful symbol? And she said, if it's just a symbol, the hell of it. And, you know, I mean, obviously it's a startling thing. But I'll be honest with you, if it was just a symbol, my life makes no sense. I mean, what's the point? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not married. I'm not, you know, I... And if all I'm doing over there, every, I'll put it this way, I certainly get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, um, you know, to go sit in a room in my house for an hour, you know, if, if that's not really Jesus Christ, then, well, it's like worse than wasting my time. I mean, it's just, it's foolishness. But he didn't just leave us alone, right? I mean, he, he said he would be with us and he meant it. And, you know, I love... Um, that prayer that we have in adoration, not every parish does this. In fact, I had never heard it before I came to Sacred Heart. But the end of the divine praises, uh, may, may Jesus Christ, the most blessed sacrament, be praised, adored, and loved with grateful affection in all the tabernacles of the world. There's just something so beautiful about that. You know, when you think about that, all the tabernacles of the world. Um, and there he is, making himself present always across time and space. And of course, there are developments. But nevertheless, that doesn't mean there's some sort of a change. We are, we are blessed. I mean, a change in a bad sense of the term, so it's not the same as it once was. But he is there with us. And, uh, and that's why we're here. That's why we're here tonight. That's why this church and this parish exists. And uh, we're very much blessed to be a part of it. Thank you, Father, for that answer. All right, moving right along. Um, next question that we have submitted. Um, why is repetition used, um, i.e. the rosary, divine, mercy, chaplet, etc.? So I guess specifically, why is repetition used in prayer, um, specifically in these um, forms of prayer that the traditions of the church have given us? I think uh, a big part of that, I mean, I have a couple of, of like reasons that have slowly kind of become very apparent to me over the years, and here's some anecdotal evidence. You know, sometimes I, you know, I go to a lot of different nursing homes and hospitals and just care facilities. And sometimes, you know, we all know, um, or many of us know, people who have dementia or Alzheimer's or just, you feel for folks that are starting to, you know, have profound mental issues. One of the beautiful things about our repetition in prayer is the fact that that prayer eventually becomes a part of who you are. I had a meeting recently with someone who's been away from the church for a long time. And when we ended up, you know, I said, you know, let's go ahead and pray. He made the sign of the cross, and he and I both prayed to our Father, the Hail Mary, and the glory be, with no issues whatsoever. He knows these words 
right from Scripture, and they are a part of him, even after many years away from the church. And I've seen folks that have, it's like they're drifting in a dark sea, and yet the sign of the cross is like a light, like a lifesaver out there in the middle that they have something to hold on to that is a part of them. So it's like even if, you know, you start to drift, not only do we have, you know, let's just say, um, you know, like the hardware, so to speak, like the chain we can hold on to towards heaven, um, to know that it's, it's there and it's strong, and those are the words that our Savior gave us, me and our Father. They're the words that the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary, that Elizabeth rejoiced with her, were asking for her prayers, and were giving glory to God, much like you know most of the book of Revelation. To get to repeat that is an amazing thing, and also, as we, as we do that along with the mysteries of the rosary, you know, it sort of opens up a place for you know, deeper thought and meditation. You don't have to focus on every word of the Hail Mary as you go through it, especially if you've been praying it since childhood. So it sort of opens up a place for you to meditate on the second sorrowful mystery, the scourging of the pillar, and the purification that that entails, and everything that our Savior went through for us, and what it must have been like to be our Blessed Mother close by. What it must have been like to be one of the soldiers who scourged him, and after, you know, like just, and, and how that relates to right now. What am I having a hard time being purified of? In what ways have I been terrible towards our Lord? I mean, and in the midst of that, you know, you have sort of like a set amount of time that you're going through. You're saying the words from Scripture that announce our salvation, you know, essentially with the Annunciation. Um, to go through that and reflect on those mysteries of the life of Christ with our Blessed Mother, it allows, you know, for that help along with her. And, you know, I mean, yeah, people can say, it's like, well, I don't, I don't need that repetition. And the thing is, I'd say, always be careful about, you know, kind of quickly, like, dismissing some long-standing traditions of the church. You know, and yeah, sometimes you're going to feel more like the rosary than others. Um, sometimes maybe you want to pray, like, the Jesus prayer from the Eastern Church. It's fine, too. But also with them, I mean, there's, there's a lot of repetition with, you know, Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. To turn that into the rhythm of your very breathing and, you know, letting each breath in, breath out, to be the praise of God and asking for mercy on yourself. Um, there's something amazing about that, and we don't really do that in many other areas of life, right? We don't repeat like that in many other areas and think about how much comes into our head and goes right out. Or as I said, it's like with these beautiful prayers, they become a part of us and they allow, I mean, for lack of a better phrase, like a mental space, so to speak, or spiritual space for us to really enter into communication with God and to spend time you know, with those very mysteries of the fact that God loves us so much to become one of us. And, you know, to reflect on everything that that means and all of the things that happened when he was, you know, with us before his passion, death, and resurrection. What happened after the resurrection, the fact that he remains with us, the fact that we can relate those mysteries to today, to what's going on right now. It's amazing. And all of those prayers, rooted very much in the sacred scripture, you know, help us to grow ever closer to Christ in those mysteries.
Yeah, I think that prayer tradition is quite beautiful that we do have this tradition of, you know, we really are challenged to pray always. And if we think of these long, complicated prayers that we're saying, sometimes it's just kind of daunting. Whereas if you have those little tiny prayers that you just, as Father said, even can pray with our very breath, you know, in that routine prayer, we really can embrace that of praying always and always giving glory to God in our day-to-day life. Now, unfortunately, I know when I say the rosary, usually what I end up meditating on is what I'm going to have for dinner that night. Um, So it's not always good to have this routine prayer because your mind can drift to other things. But, you know, that just takes some self-discipline to say, no, I need to focus on what I'm praying about, focusing on the mystery of the rosary and meditating on that life of Christ. Um, So obviously there's advantages and disadvantages of every form of prayer. And continuing with forms of prayer, the next question that we have is, can you explain contemplative prayer? Okay. So, when you think about, like, different forms of prayer, and they have, like, uh, meditation, where you open up sacred scripture, and let's say, read just a little section, like, for example, to go back to the gospel for this Sunday, you know, with the, the widow putting in, you know, all that she had, you know, it's not economically worth very much, and Jesus seeing that. To spend time on meditation, it's a good thing, you know, reading through a little bit of scripture, spending some time thinking about it, what stands out to you, going back and thinking about it a little bit more, reading it again. Um, to take the time to do that is a really good thing. When it comes to contemplation, you know, a big part of that is, you know, sort of God kind of taking over, you know, that, that sort of next level of contemplatio of, you know, being in the presence of God and making yourself available. And, you know, I'll say to you, you know, when it comes to prayer, it's kind of like exercise in a lot of ways. You know, it's like, don't expect, it's like, okay, I'm going to be, you know, John the Cross tomorrow. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. Just like you can't say, you know what, I'm going to run that half marathon tomorrow. You just, you can't do that. It's not the way that things work. And, you know, our, we need discipline to kind of keep moving on through prayer. And one of my favorite phrases about the way that our Lord works with us is, um, is, and I heard it from C.S. Lewis, but he was quoting George MacDonald, who said, God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. You know, so it's, you know, for example, you know, like with your children, they take their first step. It's not like you're like, you know, like, you know, hooray, Robbie, way to go, buddy. Don't worry about anything ever again. You just, you took that step, you're done. It's all over. No, I mean, it's like, okay, he goes from taking the first step, got to get him to walking, you know, and then he's got to start running. And then eventually, I guess what, he starts driving a car and then he gets a boat and I know the analogies eventually break down. But, you know, nevertheless, like we don't just stop after that little bit. And the beautiful thing about the faith, you know, is it, you know, essentially it's like it's, it's as though it's, it's never ending, right? I mean, getting close to our Lord, learning about sacred scripture, learning about theology, it's a subject unlike any other subject. A, it has eternal consequences. You know, they absolutely matter for all of salvation and you know, as St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So to study and to learn and to spend time with him and to pray with him is ultimately in your best interest and will be more and more forever. And he wants you to keep going deeper into that. There's going to be obstacles. There's going to be roadblocks. It's like anything, you know, getting better and better at it. But the thing is, it never really comes to an end. It's not like, you know, okay, I've, you know, learned about the history of Salisbury. Let's move on to the next thing. When it comes to learning about 
prayer. I mean, it's, we're talking about our relationship with God. And so with contemplation, you know, a big part of that is just being in his presence, making yourself, you know, available, and even offering him. Let's say that it comes up, what I'm going to have for dinner later on tonight, right? I mean, we're embodied spirits, I and mean, all this is kind of important. To say, wait a second, okay, I'm thinking about dinner later tonight. A, I'm pretty hungry, you know, but why am I hungry? Well, I haven't had a chance to eat because it's been a really busy day. What else is going on? Well, I actually am going to have food tonight. I don't have to worry about where it's coming from. Thank you, God, for that. Or I get to have dinner tonight with this particular family. I'm excited to do that. You know, to not just be freaked out when you're not, like, laser-like focused on the exact thing you intended to pray on. Um, now, don't get me wrong. I mean, if we're at Mass, you know, we're in the middle of the Eucharistic prayer, and you're like, wow, you know, I'm really kind of starting to think about that new car. Don't just, like, fly out. But, you know, you got to train up, like, bring your mind back. But at the same time, you know, if you are spending some time in prayer in the morning and you get to think about what's coming later today, I got this meeting with the director of operations who's kind of a nerd and all the nice guys, it's him. But, you know, and just to start thinking, it's like, man, I'm really glad I get to work with him, you know, and this is a good thing. And to thank God for that. And, you know, sometimes our Lord has a way of, you know, kind of telling us some of the things maybe we should be thinking about, some of the things we should be praying about. And to be able to bring that to him, and especially, like, I mean, for example, in praying the rosary, sometimes those things get related right back to the mystery, or the reading you just heard at Mass this morning, or the one you just read. Um, one of the beautiful things about Scripture, you know, it's the living and active Word of God. And so just to be in his presence and realize that we are not in absolute control, that he's there communicating with us, and I think that's one of the, the great lessons we have to learn in this day and age is we probably need to spend some time listening and making that available. Not just going to prayer with, here's my laundry list of needs and that's it and we'll see you later. But rather, you know, it's okay. Bring the needs. He wants to know them. But also remember, A, to say thank you for the many things that he's taken care of. But also to ask, like, okay, wait, what am I missing? What have I forgotten? Um, you know, your will be done. Those are, those are important things, and to kind of let him take the lead in a lot of ways takes time. Um, takes, you know, just, just that gradual practice of prayer to get better and better, so to speak. But even so, I mean, it's like, I'll, I'll give you this analogy, because I think it sort of applies. One of, uh, I know there's a scripture scholar who explained that the Gospel of John is like a magical pool in which an infant can wade and an elephant can drown. I kind of feel that way sometimes about prayer in general, right? God makes it easy in some ways for me to sit down with my four-year-old nephew and pray, you know? I mean, he can jump right into this with me. But at the same time, you know, someone who's been praying all their life can all of a sudden sort of like hit a brick wall and not know what's going on because I don't get it. We're not in complete control, but we need to set aside the time and do the basic, you know, discipline that it takes to build up that relationship with God. I really like your analogy, Father, of uh, exercising. I totally thought you were going a different way with that analogy. Uh, I like where you went, but the way I thought you were going was, well, when we exercise, sometimes we have leg day, and sometimes we have arm day, and sometimes we're working out the abs. So we're working out different parts of the body. Same with prayer. 
Sometimes we really need to dive into contemplative prayer. But if you did that every single day, you'd wear yourself out. That would be t very tiring to pray only one way. And so the church, in their infinite wisdom, gives us so many different ways that we can communicate with God. The repetition of the rosary, the divine mercy chaplet, sitting down and reading scripture, really having that contemplative prayer with God. Or just the more freeform prayer of just saying, God, thank you for this, thank you for that, here's my needs, just very communicative prayer with God. And so I think we need to, in some ways, practice all types of prayer and get used to all types of prayer because each prayer is going to fill a different need and we need to, the more we pray, the better we're going to get at all the different forms of prayer and it also just doesn't wear us out, I think is important as well. So that's where I was going to go, but I like where you went too. <laughs> And that's why we're up here together. It's great. Um, I think one final thing, too. You know, when it comes to prayer, it's, it's, uh, it goes along with the, is it how your kids spell love, T-I-M-E. You know, it's like you spend time with them. I mean, that's all you really have to do in so many ways, just to show them that you love them. The same is kind of true in prayer. I will say, I mean, it's the easiest thing to push off, right? You know, I mean, that's it's the first thing I do when I get up in the morning. I make a holy hour. And it's the easiest thing to hit the snooze button, right? It's like, well, he doesn't yell at me and say, what are you doing? Why aren't you in prayer? I mean, there's a lot of other things that there's immediate retribution, you know, if I don't do it, if I show up late to a meeting or if I show up late for mass, right? I mean, it's like there's, there's an immediate consequence with those sort of things. It doesn't come so fast with prayer. And I think with, with prayer, it's interesting because it's not always obvious when you're doing it, but it becomes very apparent when you're not. And so to be consistent and to set aside daily time, it's like anything. If you don't set aside the time for it, it doesn't happen. And so, and, and don't get me wrong, I mean, I'm a priest. I've been involved in either formation or, you know, been ordained since 2004. So it's been a long time, you know, and I was blessed to get to go away for six years to a seminary to specifically learn how to pray to spend time in the study of the faith. Not everybody gets that awesome opportunity. I mean, it's an amazing thing. So, to be like, wow, you know, he's making a holy hour. What am I? No, don't do that to yourself. We're all in different places. But like anything, you know, running that half marathon starts with the first step. I mean, you, you want to start somewhere. If you're not doing anything, start with at least a Hail Mary a day. You know, it's, Father, that's not very much. Well, what are you doing now? Well, nothing. Well, it's a heck of a lot more than nothing. You know, I mean, start with something that you can do, and you can do it every day and get good at it, and then once you're good at it, then start adding on, you know? God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. And it's nice thing. He's always going to keep calling us deeper, but until you start and you give that gift of time to him, um, you know, you end up, I keep going with the, the exercise analogies, I need to exercise more. It's like the, uh, you know, it's like the couch potato thing. I mean, it's like until you get up and get off the couch, you know, nothing's really going to happen. So just, Start, it's just that small step, start somewhere. And a great wise man once told me that a decade a day keeps the devil away. Uh, I can't remember who I'm quoting, but uh, it's, a good, it's a good practice to hold in our daily lives. Father Herb Burke. Father Herb Burke is what Father Herb is telling me who I'm quoting. All right, let me see, where are we at with questions? All right, good. We're uh, changing topics a little bit here. Um, the question states, are we allowed to keep some of the ashes after cremation, or must they all be buried? They all need to be buried. So, 
when, um, when a loved one dies, obviously, we need to give respect and due honor to the body. Um, and the church does allow for cremation, but the body needs to be kept together and interred in a cemetery. Um, you know, for, and, and I'll tell you, you know, it's, it's, it's for the honor of the person. It's for you know, our ability to go back and pay our respects. Um, because, you know, we, as I said before, we're embodied spirits. Our bodies are a part of who we are. And we even say in the creed, we believe in the resurrection of the body. Um, okay, can God put all the pieces back together again? Sure. You know, it's not like, you know, Maximilian Kolbe killed in Auschwitz, burned in the ovens, and scattered to the, you know, winds. But still, I mean, it's like, don't use that as an analogy for, well, it's okay to scatter ashes, and it's like, no, it's not putting you in a good company. Um, can God put it back together? Yes, but we need to give honor to the gift that is our body, and the way to do that is to, you know, inter them in the cemetery. And the other thing is, I would say, you know, I've, I've heard different people talk just over the years, and it's also so good for us, you know, to have that place to go. I know I'm jumping from keeping some of the ashes to, like, scattering the ashes. But the thing is, like, to know that we have a place to go to visit them, I mean, essentially, I mean, it's, it's important for us to have that place, to know there's somewhere, like, set in stone that says they live, they matter, we can, we can go and do that. It's a, it's a wonderful and beautiful thing for us. And, you know, the grave, it's a sign of hope. That, you know, even as it claims the body, reminds us of the resurrection. And just as Jesus rose from the dead, you know, we believe. And, and we, you know, that's why we give such due honor to the body. Because Jesus Christ himself, you know, chose to become one of us. Like us, all things but sin. You know, just yet fingernails. Like we have fingernails. You know, I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing. And in that, then we give due honor to the body. All right, since you got on to uh, burying bodies in cemeteries, I'm going to tell a quick story, if you don't mind, because it's very interesting. Um, so I was uh, traveling around Salisbury. Uh, I had some free time, which doesn't normally come, and I just decided to go for a drive. And I'm kind of out by uh, Airport Road, so I'm kind of on the other side of town. And it was the day before All Souls Day, so All Saints Day. Um, and I had the day off of work. That's right. That's why I had time. I didn't have to come here. Um, and I was stopped at uh, a church, a Presbyterian church, Thyatrica, uh, Thyatrica. You Salisburyans probably know what I'm talking about more than I can actually say. Thyatira. Thank you, Thyatira, Presbyterian church. And I decided to walk through the cemetery. There are some really old gravestones in that cemetery. It was amazing walking through there. Um, and I actually found three gravestones that had no markings on it other than a skull and crossbones on it. And I was like, whoa, that's really interesting. What in the world is this? And I actually found a sign. And the story is that there was actually pirates in this part of Salisbury that were essentially hung for their crimes as pirates. And the court essentially said, you can bury these pirates, but they are not allowed to have any markings on their gravestones other than a skull and crossbones. And I have pictures. You can come and look at my phone and see the pictures of these gravestones. But I was just like, wow, that's really interesting that here in Salisbury there's a little piece of history from hundreds of years ago. And even, I'm sure that there was a huge argument of, well, we still need to bury these people. We still need to bury these pirates, even for the crimes they've done, because 
the resurrection of the body is real, and we need to treat their bodies, even though they weren't very nice people, most likely, uh, we still need to treat their bodies with respect. Um, so I guess the compromise was we're not going to put markings on the graves, so let's remember who they were. Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was kind of odd. And yes, that was a lot of fun. Um, let's see. Um, let through, make sure. Okay, next question. So we're uh, kind of going back to the mass a little bit, a little bit more morality on this question, Father. Um, can a divorced person receive the most holy Eucharist? Okay, can a divorced person receive the most holy Eucharist? Yes, if they are um, not... Okay, so, so here's the big question. You notice that there's been a lot of talk about this since about 2014, since the first um, synod on the family. It's not an issue of divorce per se. The question would be if someone is divorced and remarried without an annulment. Um, and the, the problem that lies therein, um, it's not just like a straight, like a, like a particular sinful issue. The problem where this arises is, okay, you know, we don't hold to divorce in the Catholic Church, right? I mean, if you have gotten divorced from your spouse, um, until there is what's called a declaration of nullity or an annulment, um, looking back to the beginning of the marriage, looking at whether or not consent was able to occur between the husband and the wife, um, until that would be established, you're not free to remarry someone else. Why? Because technically you're still bound to that first person. So if you are still bound to someone else and you are um, remarried to someone else, even though you're bound to this first person, it's a public thing. And you, you, I mean, you, and you're not actually free to be married to this next person. So therein lies the issue. The divorce in and of itself, I mean, if you're, you're separated from your spouse, if you're living in different places, um, if you're not, I mean, as long as you're in a state of grace, you know, there's no mortal sin on your soul, no, you, can, you can go to communion, that's fine. The problem arises when, you know, you attempt remarriage without having first, you know, have that declaration of nullity. If you're still technically bound to someone else, you're not free to be bound to someone else, and because of that, you're not free to receive the sacraments. That's where that comes in. And so if you know someone in this particular state, this is a big thing, have them come and talk to me, to someone on Facebook Live, to their particular pastor or priest, um, you know, to talk to the priest and to work through, you know, um, the annulment. I will say, you know, some people are scared about the possibility of an annulment. They've heard that, you know, oh my gosh, it costs so much. The thing is, that's not an issue. We will take care of it. I mean, basically, um, you know, it's Pope Francis has made this. I mean, that we, we're not allowed to, like, you know, to essentially charge to the point like somebody can't do this. So if you can't afford to pay for it, we'll still help you. It's okay. Come in and talk to us. And if, for many people, you know, it's, it's a very therapeutic thing to go through, and I don't know if therapeutic is the right word, let's say healing, you know, healing, it's kind of the same thing, you know what I mean, but to go through that enrollment process, why? Well, because, you know, it takes two people entering into a relationship, right? And to look back, what was going on at the time of that consent? What was happening there that made it so the two of you could not 
come together in that way. So to look at that and, you know, to go through, you know, shedding light on things, bringing things into the light, always bringing things into the truth, is it painful sometimes? Yes, of course it is. But nevertheless, remember like the, the offering it up question we started with, to embrace the suffering that our Lord offers us, it's not just suffering for suffering's sake, it's going through embracing the truth, embracing the reality, seeing what was happening there, what kind of healing needs to occur. Because to just simply go from, you know, a failed relationship to another one, I mean, the chances are there's probably some things that have not been dealt with, that need to be dealt with before something else would happen. And so the church is always about bringing things into the light, bringing people into healing. You know, and yeah, it's a tough thing sometimes. Just like taking someone to the hospital. People don't skip into the hospital so excited to go. No, it's a painful place. But it's a place of healing. And so to go in and to go through that and to come back, you know, and hopefully having the wounds healed and looked at what was going on, then able to, you know, enter into another union and then at that point and be able to go to communion. But just divorce in and of itself doesn't preclude you from going to communion. And really, the heart of the matter is, are you in the state of grace, as Father said? And we all need to reflect on the same thing. Are we in the state of grace? Are we in the state of mortal sin? Do we need to go to confession to have our mortal sins uh, forgiven? So, I think sometimes we try to put this question in a very small, narrow pocket, where really this is a, a much bigger question of no, it really comes down to the state of our souls. Are we in the state of grace? Should we be receiving communion today? And if not, then I need to make time to go to confession. You know, it's we just had All Souls Day a week ago today. You know, we pray for the people who are in purgatory, you know, those who still need to go through purification and that to be able to go to heaven. But when you think about it, the closest place we get to heaven on earth is receiving our Lord at Mass. You know, I mean, receiving the Blessed Sacrament. I mean, it is the bread of angels. I mean, it's, you know, that, you know, that, that eternal gift. I mean, we're literally touching Christ. And so, to approach Him, we need to be ready for that, right? You know, like our hearts need to be purified and need to be clean. And in the same way, it's like the souls in purgatory need to be purified before going to heaven. And the same is true for us before we go to communion. And so, that, that whole thing about making sure that we are in a state of grace, so we don't have any moral sins on our soul. Because, you know, in the same way, it's like... Uh, you know, tracking a bunch of mud into someone's, you know, beautiful home that's prepared for a party. You, know, you gotta get cleaned up first. You need to clean yourself up before you go to our Lord. Um, and of course, you know, we have the penitential right at the beginning of Mass, which takes care of our venial sins. But nevertheless, I mean, if you have a mortal sin on your soul, something that's serious, you have freedom, um, what is it? Yeah, it's grave, freedom, and, uh, Full consent. Full, full consent. So, like, you, you know, you're, you're consenting to something that's, you need to make sure that you're not in that state. And frankly, that's why I have confessions here just about every day. We don't have them on Sunday. But, you know, because it is so important. And that's not to make us, you know, like crazy scrupulous about, oh my gosh, I just had a bad thought. I can't possibly. No, I mean, our Lord, He loves us. He wants us to be free. He wants us to be happy. And especially free of mortal sin. One of my favorite lines about the moral teaching in the church 
is God doesn't want to like ruin your weekend, but he does want you to be in a state of grace on Monday. You know, I mean, that's, that's the way, because ultimately that's what, you know, he wants us to be happy, fulfilled, free from the bonds and the chains of sin. And so in order to approach him in the Blessed Sacrament, that's what, you know, we've got to get ourselves ready, just like the souls in purgatory are being purified before they go to heaven. Awesome, thank you for that, Bob. All right, so we're going to take one more, we're going to ask one more question, um, and then we'll take a 15-minute break um, so everyone can grab a drink, some food. You at home watching on Facebook, make sure you grab some drinking food during our 15-minute break, and then we'll be right back. Uh, use the restroom as well if anyone needs to. Um, so our final question before we take a quick break, why are the same saints' names repeated at every Mass? So there are certain saints, right, that we say pretty much at every Mass in Eucharistic Prayer 1. Right? Okay, I'm trying to see if I can walk with you here, Father. Um, so these saints somehow made it into the Eucharist prayer, and other saints didn't. So, why are they? That's a good question. Okay, so, if you look at this, so that would be Eucharistic Prayer 1. It's called the Roman Canon. And I will just tell you, this isn't official church teaching, what I'm about to say. This is my own personal way of going about things. Just so everybody here at Sacred Heart knows how I choose Eucharistic prayers. So, the way I look at it, my daily Mass prayer, as you may have figured out by now, is Eucharistic Prayer 3. I think it's beautiful. There's a lot of particular lines in there, like the one I talked about on the Feast of All Saints, about relying on the unfailing help of the saints. And there's a place in Eucharistic Prayer 3 that allows you to insert in a particular saint. So, for example, if you come to Mass tomorrow, I'm going to use Eucharistic Prayer 3 at the 8 a.m. Mass. It's the feast day of St. Leo the Great. So, I'll say our Blessed Mother, St. Joseph, all the, uh, is it a mark? I'll just read it. Where is it here? Eucharistic prayer 3. Here it is. Okay. Um, especially with the most blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, with Blessed Joseph, her spouse, with your blessed apostles and glorious martyrs. Tomorrow I'll say with St. Leo. And notice this too. When you have the saint of the day, just like at the name of Jesus and at the name of Mary, there's a slight like bow of the head do the same thing on the saint for their feast day. It doesn't have to be dramatic over the top, but if you watch, I bow my head a little bit at their name. So it'll be St. Leo tomorrow. Eucharistic prayer 3 has a spot for that to add in the saint of the day. So that's kind of like my daily mass Eucharistic prayer. On Sunday, just like you know, you wear your Sunday best to mass, I typically like to use Sunday best, and I so I typically use Eucharistic prayer 1. Um, it's, it's, it's more, uh, it's, it's extended, it's, a, it's called the Roman Canon, and a big part of that is the, the Canon of the Saints, the list of those saints. And you'll notice, I mean, most of them are from the first several centuries of our faith. You get um, the Apostles first, then a list of, of several of the first Popes, and then a couple that... Um, were important in the early days. Like Cosmos and Damien, if I'm not mistaken, um, those are two, I think they were twins, and the thought was like the new Romulus and Remus, um, you know, the, the founder of Rome, and you know, got these saints that are replacing them. I've heard that, don't hold me to that one, of course we're recording this, but, you know, nevertheless, I mean, so they, they were all inserted early on in this list, and then of course, in, uh, after the consecration, you have a second list. And you get some of the big ones, like John the Baptist and Stephen. And then you get some of the early uh, women martyrs in the church, too. Felicity, Perpetua, Agatha, Lucy, Agnes, Cecilia, Anastasia. 
I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful list. And so you have that in the Roman canon. It's, it's a list, I think, that was established in the 300s, um, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think any, anyone is more recent than the 4th century. Uh, but that was established pretty early on. So Eucharistic Prayer 1, you have that specific canon of the saints. And Eucharistic Prayer 3, you have the option to insert. Those are the two you're going to hear me say most of the time. Eucharistic Prayer 2, for my money, it's just really, really short. I feel like you melt down and I'm immediately in the consecration. So I almost never use it. And then um, Eucharistic Prayer 4, it's a beautiful prayer. Uh, and I recommend, too, I mean, I... I use this, I mean, here's some free advertising, the Magnificat. Um, it's a wonderful, uh, basically Dominican publication. Father Peter Cameron is the editor-in-chief. I, I think their articles are very well done. They have a great meditation. I say nine times out of ten, their article is beautiful for the readings of the day. But in the midst of that, they have all of the Eucharistic prayers. I mean, so to go back and just to read through and meditate on the beautiful language of those prayers. And I think Eucharistic Prayer 4, some of the language, I mean, it's, it's very much incarnation, uh, very beautiful in the way that it describes like the fall, Jesus coming, Jesus, you know, and, and what's the line in particular? I don't use it that often, but now I'll find a way to share with you a bit. But, um, you know, there's some beauty to it, but just my own, you know, all of us priests kind of have our own particular ways of going about things, so there's the secret and which if you go to Mass here you've figured it out already. On weekdays I use Eucharistic Prayer 3, on Sundays I use Eucharistic Prayer 1. Unless I'm in a hurry on Sunday, then it's Eucharistic Prayer 3. I think there was one day, for some reason you used 4, and it totally threw me off. That was my goal. What? What is Father doing? He used 4. Why would he use 4? Um, but it's nice to hear all the different prayers uh, at different times. Um, so we're going to go ahead and take a break. Please feel free to grab some food, grab some drink. Again, remember to keep submitting questions. Keep liking those questions. You at home, you can go to slido, S-L-I-D-O dot com, and enter the code S-H-C-C and submit questions and get involved here as well. We'll see you all in 15 minutes. And just let everybody know, on this Facebook Live thing, we have one thumbs up and one high five, so that's pretty exciting. So we've made it so very Way to go. Say as we uh, start this wonderful second half, uh, special thanks to the Catholic daughters for providing the food tonight, and our bartenders extraordinaire, our Knights of Columbus. Thank you. Guys. So, Father, may I just give you one pointer, please? What? <laughs> no, no tapping on them. Yeah, that was true. Um, we got a lot of questions to go through. Okay. You gave great answers. We might have shortened them just you know, that much. Uh, I don't know if you all know, but Father and I actually sit down on a weekly basis and talk about his homilies. Um, we talk about in preparation for his homily, and then we talk about a brief summary after we talk about his homilies, uh, after he gives his homily. And actually, I don't think I've ever said your homily was too long. Maybe once, but usually not. But then you give him a, a microphone to hold in his hand, and then all that's wrong. It's true. So he's just like, ah. No one's got to go anywhere. They got beers in front of them, so now we can just talk all night. And that's actually why I emphasized the nerd point earlier, because he doesn't hold anything back. He'll, he'll let me know what he thinks. So I figured, well, here's a public opportunity for me to get him back. So it's just great. Thank you very much. And my wife might be watching. Hi, wife, maybe. Um, and she probably appreciates all that as well. So. <laughs>
Um, so we're going to actually start with um, one question that um, the viewers here wrote down for us, just because I thought it went along well, very well with the conversation where we're at. Um, so the question reads, does the church recognize a marriage if it is not performed by a priest? If so, what must be done for such a marriage to be valid in the church? I have heard that the process varies from state to state. Uh, I wouldn't say the process varies from state to state. You have to get what's called a dispensation from the local ordinary or the bishop um, to be dispensed from the normal form. So you have to have uh, permission, essentially, from the diocese to have something happen. So let's say you know, a Catholic is marrying a Lutheran. Um, they're, you know, the, 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 let's say the boy is Catholic, girl is Lutheran. They're very, very close to the Lutheran pastor. I mean, there, there can be a, um, a dispensation for the Lutheran pastor to be able to marry them. But still, the process needs to, like, they need to come through the church to get the proper uh, permission. And typically, I mean, the priest would probably be involved in some way in the wedding. I think I got that. Pace up there, right? Or a deacon, excuse me. So, yeah. So typically, I mean, we would still be involved. But there are particular uh, processes that happen. And I guess the way I would say it would vary from, I wouldn't say say, say diocese to diocese. It just depends on um, the permission coming from the top. I mean, typically, they're operating from the same standards. But I do know, like in our diocese, um, we're, there's no permissions given for outdoor weddings. It's like you just might as well just not ask because um, they're not going to come. That might be different in some dioceses, but I know here it just doesn't happen. I will say as a priest, I really appreciate that. Tomorrow is our golf outing, and it's the third time we've had to reschedule because of multiple hurricanes. There you go. God invented churches for a reason, so it just helps. And so, Father, um, you're specifically, I guess, talking about those who are Catholic and getting married, but what about those who were not Catholic when they were married and then became Catholic later on? What would the church say about the validity of uh, their marriage? That depends on if, okay, so if neither of them were Catholic, and neither of them had a prior bond, were not married to someone else, they were free to get married. Um, the thing about marriage in the Catholic Church, is kind of like full faith and credit between states. I mean, we, if, you know, two atheists today got married at the courthouse downtown, we do still recognize that. So if they were to get divorced, and then eventually one of them was going to marry a Catholic, they'd still have to have that first uh, that prior bond on gold, um, because we do recognize that. And let's say those two atheists were going to then come into the church. I mean, really, we wouldn't have to do a marriage blessing because they're coming into the church because they didn't like, violate any of the laws. Everything was okay. There's no prior bond. They're okay to come together. Essentially, it says that as they come into the church, everything just is essentially worked out because they didn't violate anything at the time. They, to atheists. But if you have a Catholic, you got married outside the church without the appropriate permissions, dispensations, that's when something has to be corrected. So it's like you're held to the rules in the state in which you are, if that makes sense. So if you, um, you know, two non-Catholics get married, one of them becomes Catholic, they don't have to have their marriage plus because nothing went wrong in the first place. Yeah, it's just interesting you know, because as Catholics, we recognize that we are following the teachings of the church. So we are held to, in some ways, a different standard. We are required to go to the Mass on Holy Days of Obligation. Somebody who's not Catholic 
there's no requirement for them there in the, in the same sense. Um, so depending on where you are at a different point in your life, there are different things that are expected of you. And as baptized Catholics, there are different things that are expected of us that even if a, somebody became Catholic later on, I mean, those obligations wouldn't be required of them at that point as well because they weren't Catholic. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. Thanks, Oh, we got a follow-up. Oh, yeah. What if you're not practicing Catholics at the time of marriage? So the question was from the audience for the viewers at home, um, what if they aren't practicing Catholics? So how would that apply to them? Once you're baptized a Catholic, you're always a Catholic. I mean, you're still held to those rules. Right? So, you know, if you were baptized as a child as a Catholic and then never came back, I mean, you're still technically, you are Catholic. Um, you can't take that away. Perfect, thank you. Alright, following along, uh, going on a very different train of thought, but this actually is one of the topics I like to talk about a lot. I did with my students in seventh grade the other day. Um, Father, I am interested in indulgences. How did the ritual begin? How is it decided what must be done to receive the indulgence? Okay, so an indulgence has to do with like sort of an extraordinary effort is being put forward um, in some you know particular way to help folks around you. So like receiving those extra graces, uh, and you know sometimes there are extraordinary opportunities. You know during a jubilee year with holy doors to make a pilgrimage to you know say the cathedral to go through the holy doors and to you know, do the particular prayers, or to pray the particular prayers that are associated with the indulgence, um, and also to pray for the intentions of the Holy Father, and to, um, and to go to Mass, and to not have any uh, attachments to sin. Not the easiest things, like all of it together. There are many indulgences we can receive every day. I'm not mistaken, I think praying the rosary in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament is it a plenary indulgence? I mean, so, and there's different gradations. Like a plenary is like, like full-blown, like you can offer that for someone who's passed away or for yourself. Um, it's a kind of, it's like going above and beyond, doing something beyond just the day-to-day the -day life, you know, kind of the basic requirements. It's an encouragement to really work hard on someone's behalf or on your own uh, to try to receive more grace. And I mean, you know, some of things like, oh, you're hurting yourself. You're, well, it's not so much that. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's cooperating with opportunities that God gives us. And just sort of like before talking about prayer, you got to get up off the couch, you know, and get going. And sometimes there are extra incentives, so to speak, to doing a little bit more. You know, it's a, hey, I'm going to, you know, like I said, praying the rosary in front of the Blessed Sacrament. There's a reason why I mean, we leave the church open from essentially 6 in the morning until about 9, 10 at night. By the way, my ultimate goal, I was thinking about this time, I was like, what would I say if they asked me, where do you see yourself in 10 years? I thought, well, I see myself tearing up a mortgage. That would be awesome um, for, our, for our debt. That would be great. And living on campus um, because I'd love to live here on campus at Sacred Heart so we can leave the church open 24 hours a day. Because that would be like my ultimate goal. I live too far away now. It's not comfortable leaving in 24 hours. But, you know, they will look at it. It's like, you know, if it's 2 o'clock in the morning and you're having some issues, there's not a lot of great places you can go at 2 o'clock in the morning. That's steak and shake. Um, that's the best one right now. Um, but, you know, if 
we had the church open, you'd come here and pray. It would be amazing. Uh, so just to have that all the time, I love that. You know, just, just to be able to, you know, do those extra things. I guess going back to indulgence. Sorry, I'm totally going against your short answer request. Um, but, you know, to, to, to take the opportunities that God gives us. There's some problem going on. Okay, I can sit here and stew about it, yeah. But I can also, you know, as uh, Ray Paradossi likes to say, get up off my duff and go to the church and pray a rosary and offer up some prayers and the intentions of the Holy Father and really, you know, like strive to get some grace, you know, towards someone in purgatory, towards myself, like to pray for this particular situation. I mean, that's the big thing about an indulgence. And I mean, yeah, there was some like misuse and like some serious like financial aspects to an indulgence in the Middle Ages. And you have uh, Theodore Tetzel, who was a priest who kind of went, he was sort of like the poster boy for going overboard with it. And, you know, you know, was it a, a clean? Basically, it's like when the, when the bell rings, the angel gets his wings. It's like a clank of the coin spring, or from, the, from purgatory, the, uh, the soul springs. Something along those lines, which I doubt that's exactly it, because I would assume he would have spoken German, so it probably didn't rhyme like that. But nevertheless, I mean, yeah, was it corrupted in that way? Sure. But at the same time, does that mean don't pray the rosary now? No, of course not. Do extraordinary things. I mean, strive to, you know, get every ounce of grace that you can for you and your loved ones. Of course, do that and do it all the time. Just because the word indulgence at times kind of has some bad connotations. And by the way, I highly recommend look at what the catechism has to say about indulgences, because I'm definitely not just giving you a definition right now. Um, but, you know, to do the, like, going above and beyond, it's a good thing to do, especially when, when things are tough. And now you all know why I have to be so forceful with my pastor, because he doesn't listen to me anyways. So, it's true. Um, can I, can I uh, talk more Please. about indulgences? Um, so this is, we're all uh, making sure we understand what an indulgence is actually doing. Um, the indulgence essentially is paying back um, our temporal punishment from sin. So this is an example I use with my seventh graders, and they usually get it, and I trust you all that can get it as well. Um, so imagine you're playing baseball on your street, and you hit an amazing home run right through your neighbor's window, right? Most of my seventh graders said the first thing they would do if they did that would run and hide under their beds, which is fine. I understand that. I probably would do the same. Um, so after you run and hide and your parents said, go over to your neighbor and tell them you're sorry, you go sheepishly over to the door, knock on the door, Mr. Jones, I'm sorry for breaking your window. Now, if Mr. Jones was a Christian, which I, we're assuming he is in this situation, he would probably say, I forgive you. Great, wonderful. But what's Mr. Jones going to say next? I need you to pay for my window. So even though we are forgiven of our sins, there's still a justice that has to be done. So even though we can walk in and out of confession and all our sins are forgiven and gone, that still doesn't make the world right. It doesn't make what happened with our sins correct. And so we could walk out of confession and we could still have time in purgatory of paying back our temporal punishment. And this is what indulgences are simply doing. It's some sort of sacrifice. It's some sort of offering up of prayer and penance to pay back for that temporal punishment that we have received due to the penalty of our sins. And we can, again, offer those indulgences for other people's penalty for their sins, other people's temporal punishment, our own temporal punishment. And it really just comes down to 
sacrificing, right, offering prayer, offering penance. Um, and we already understand that some souls in purgatory cannot be released without prayer and penance. And this is just one way that the church states very specifically that prayer and penance can help those in purgatory and pay back their temporal punishment. Good with that, Bob? I'm very good with that. Cool. Thanks, Bob. Uh, moving right along, totally changing topics, but very important as we enter the holiday season, and as we would say in the church, the new year of the church. Um, what are some practical suggestions to celebrate Advent beyond the obvious of going to Mass or going to confession on a more frequent basis during this time? That's a good question. Um, the thing with Advent, I think to kind of treat it like a little Lent, and I think that gets harder and harder, you know, as we um, don't enjoy delayed gratification at all as a society. I mean, I've already seen, I was driving through Spencer the other day, and I think the Spencer shops are already all decorated for Christmas, and it's November the 9th. You know, I mean, it's, it's funny, and then, I don't even mind that, because I love Christmas decorations so much. I still have my nativity scene up in my house. Um, but the thing is, what drives me nuts is everybody takes everything down by the evening of the 25th. That's ridiculous. It makes no sense. Um, why we have to hurry up and get it down and get on to celebrating Valentine's Day, I don't understand. Um, but I think to do our best to kind of practice some of that delayed gratification, um, you know, not to necessarily take on the like, penances with the strength that we do during Lent, but nevertheless to give some things up is not a bad idea. Now, I get it. There's going to be the office Christmas party and this Christmas party and that. Fine. You know, enjoy. Don't go and gorge yourself on Christmas cookies. I mean, have one. Great. But maybe that's a good thing to give up for like one cookie a day, right? Or one for Advent. And to have, like, little penances along the way. Um, I think working your way through the opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew are both really good ways to go about it. Both Mark and John basically move kind of right into the public ministry of Christ. But Matthew and Luke both give us, you know, the infancy narratives. And they're beautiful. I think to take the time to go through those and maybe dedicate, you know, for those four weeks of, um, of Advent, you know, of kind of working through, you know, the, the first and the second uh, joyful mysteries of the rosary, let's say, you know, for the you know, first week and a half do the Annunciation, second week and a half the Visitation, and then before you know we're at the Nativity. Um, and just to kind of you know, go through and spend some time you know, in those ways. And I think also, you know, and, and I know it's said, you know, not just going to confession, but doing a good examination of conscience. I mean, throughout, you know, the season of Advent, maybe a little bit more than you've done in the past. I know on, I think at least it used to be on form, there's a book um, by Father Thomas Dubay. Uh, it's called, not the prayer primer, it's like uh, Deep Conversion, Deep Prayer, I think is what it's called. And it really gives a good uh, kind of synopsis on like, better confessions. Uh, that's a good one to do. Another, I think, very helpful examination of conscience is to read the end of the 12th chapter and the beginning of the 13th chapter of St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Um, you all know it if you've ever been to a wedding. It's the section that says, you know, love is patient, love is kind. Um, to go through that and to read that section 
And to take out the word love and to put in the word Jesus Christ, in the name Jesus Christ, it works. And Jesus Christ is patient, he's kind, he's not brood over injuries. Uh, to do that, it works, but can you take his name out and put in your own? Does that work? Um, I know it doesn't for me, and I wish that it would. And so it's a good examination of conscience, and to really, you know, take your time and examine your conscience. Also, you know, when you think about it as we were in this, like, season of gift-giving, to go through what you're already thankful for. I think sometimes in our sort of advertising soaked obsessed culture, we're always told about all the things we don't have. Spend some time reflecting on all that you do have, especially the most important things, the greatest of gifts, particularly the people in your life and the gift of our faith. The fact that you know, as we get ready to celebrate Christmas, it's not just you know another party like all the other parties in the world that's just done that afternoon. I mean, we're still in the incarnation here. I mean, this is, this is you know, absolute history changing and life-changing for us. So to reflect on that throughout those weeks on how that affects you, um, the fact that Jesus Christ is in our life is a really important thing. Final thing I'll say, one of my favorite practices for Advent is to read Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And I say that because when you think about it, you got the four ghosts in the four weeks of Advent between Jacob Marley and the ghosts of Christmas, past, present, and future. Once again, it kind of adds into a good reflective spirit, um, you know, and a good examination of conscience in the same way that Ebenezer Scrooge needs to. What ways do we need to? And I think Dickens, this is wonderful British wit. It's uh, it's wonderful to actually go back and reread the story. There's so many movie adaptations. My favorite is Scrooge with Bill Murray. It's fantastic. But nevertheless, to actually go back and reread Charles Dickens and use that as a good reflection piece. You know, I mean, it's, it is really helpful to actually read the book. It uh, goes a long way. And one way to practice penance that I've heard in Advent um, is that, you know, we're preparing for Christmas and there's going to be a lot of gifts received. So why don't we practice doing the opposite of giving more away. So I actually know people who say, I'm going to give one thing away each day. You know, or a bag a week of things. You know, to try to learn how to let go of these worldly possessions in our life. And that's a great form of penance. How are we going to let go of these worldly things? So every day, I'm going to go to Goodwill and I'm going to drop off one thing. Or I'm going to stock it up and every week I'm going to fill up a trash bag full. And that's my penance that I'm going to practice. And then it's helpful because then you get a lot of stuff at Christmas and now you have places to put it. So there's a very practical aspect to it as well. But the penance aspect is important of letting go of worldly possessions. Um, uh, I know my wife would wish I would give away more of my clothes because my closet would be standing to her side. She's kind of a minimalist. Um, so going uh, back to the saints a little bit, we have a question that reads, how does a saint become a doctor of the church? The way I understand it is that their, their particular teaching, writing, has had a profound impact on the tradition of the church. Now, it's not like the amount that they've written. For example, St. Therese of Lisieux, the 24-year-old Carmelite cloistered nun uh, who died of, I believe, tuberculosis, you know, like said, she was only 20, she was 12 years younger than I am now, um, and she's a doctor of the church. 
because of that profound insight of, you know, in the body of Christ, what am I called to be? I'm called to be love, you know, to be at the heart of that love of his. And just her, you know, emphasis on doing the ordinary things in life of extraordinary love. To be able to sum things up in that way, and as a, as I said, young, cloistered sister to be the patroness of the missions because of the way that she was, it's profound. It has a profound impact on the teaching in the church. And I don't know the exact definition of what it takes to become a doctor, but that's usually what it is, is that their teaching has had a, you know, a, a profound impact on the general teaching in the church. I think at this point, because Pope Francis has named a few, I, I think there's only about 40 doctors in the church all day. I think there was 33 for a while. He's named a couple. I think we're probably still 140. It's probably like 36. And I think four of them are women. St. Teresa of Avila, St. Catherine of Siena, St. Therese of Lisieux, and St. Hildegard of Vindic is the newest one. What about St. Teresa of Benedicta? I don't think she's a doctor yet. Okay. St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross, I don't believe she's a doctor yet. She may be some point. That's uh, her name before. She's Edith Stein. Uh, she was a Jewish convert, um, Carmelite sister. Uh, eventually, I think she was raised Jewish, became an atheist, converted to Christianity, eventually became Catholic, entered the uh, Carmelite monastery, and then was shipped off to a concentration camp. And um, her, she has profound writings on empathy and compassion. Just a beautiful soul I definitely want to learn more about. But I don't believe she's a doctor in the church. An interesting story. When I was at World Youth, I went to World Youth Day in Spain back in 2015, I think it was. And actually, while Pope Benedict was there at World Youth Day, he proclaimed um, St. John of Avila, I believe it is, as a doctor of a church at World Youth Day, and it was in front of all the seminarians that were at World Youth Day, so he had a special mass for all the seminarians, and some of my friends, um, who are now priests, were seminarians, and I was kind of jealous. But they're like, we couldn't see anything anyways. We were outside the church 20 rows back, so it was kind of like we almost weren't there. I'm like, okay, well, you still were there. Um, so really, the book kind of decide or proclaim a doctor of the church based off of the rubric Father said. So relating to that, do you have any book recommendations? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> I guess it sort of depends um, on in relation to what. Uh, I will, I'll just give you a couple off the top of my head that have been profoundly helpful to me. Um, I'm thinking about, okay, in my chapel right now, what's sitting there. So, St. Claude de la Colombière, he's a wonderful writer uh, he was the spiritual director of St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, who is the one who had the revelations of Jesus uh, telling her to spread devotion to his most sacred heart. So the way I look at it, it's almost like you know he's a saint connected to our parish as the spiritual director of the saint who received those revelations. Uh, there's a book of his collected writings. I said St. Claude. Once you get to that point, you'll probably get it. De la Colombière. I'll tell you this too. When I was ordained a deacon, we were right in the midst at the seminary of like a big administration change. And none of the priests that were in charge were really like involved in planning the liturgy for our ordination. So it's like whatever you guys who are being ordained, the three of you want, that's fine. Just take care of it. So we got to essentially pick any saints we wanted for the litany of saints 
in our uh, ordination. So, you know, the ordination rite, uh, all the candidates wait, we prostrate ourselves on the floor, and the litany of saints is chanted, and it's amazing. And um, so I had to pick some of my favorite saints, and one of them was St. Claude de la Colombier, which is fun to hear chanted. St. Claude de la Colombier, pray for us. Yeah, so it was just, was, and the other one was St. Catherine Tecaquita, pray for us. St. Jean de Brebeuf, pray for, You know, so I picked all the ones that were hardest to say because I love them. But I'll never forget, too, because my sister has a really big uh, devotion to St. Catherine Tecaquita. And when it got to that point, I was wearing a medal that she gave me. I get emotional sometimes. And uh, I remember, like, I'm, so I'm laying prostrate on the floor, right? And my back arched, and, like, emotion just leaked out of my eyes and my nose all over the floor. And at the time, the floor of the seminary was kind of, like, concrete-ish. And I left a puddle of emotion on the floor. In fact, to this day, there's a priest in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, who still affectionately refers to me as snots. Anyway, um, so it was wonderful, but all that to say, read St. Claude de la Colombier. Just like another one of my favorite saints, St. Jose Maria Escriva. He has, a, has, it's like a collection of books, one is called The Way. Um, it's broken down into like these little sentences or just a couple of sentence chunks that they just, they're so good, kind of encouraging you along the way. St. Claude de la Colombier, his works are kind of set up in the same way, where it'll just be like these little, I, I'm paraphrasing, but St. Jose Maria Escriva. It's like, you say, um, you know, someday you're going to do something great, then, someday, someday, then. He's like, you expect to win the Supernatural Olympics without doing the daily work that it takes? It's like, get up and start doing something today. And the great thing with that is, like, he's so good at both, like, patting you on the back and kicking you in the butt at the same time. And I think sometimes to have those kind of, like, spiritual coaches is so good. So both of those authors, um, St. Jose Maria Escriva and St. Claude de la Colombier, I highly recommend them for kind of, like, just daily spiritual reading. There's another, I think Magnificat actually put this out. It's like a day-by-day with type book. But unlike any I've ever read, it's called Benedictus, and it's day by day with Pope Benedict XVI. It's beautifully put together. The artwork is great. But I will say, I mean, one of my theories, and I, you know, I could be very wrong on this, but I think Pope Benedict XVI will someday be a doctor of the church. His writing is profound, incredible. I mean, I remember I was in seminary when St. John Paul II died. I mean, I remember, it's funny, I was at the gym, and I remember being on the treadmill and seeing on TV that he died, like I'm running and crying at the same time. And then, you know, Pope Benedict XVI became the Holy Father. I didn't know who he was. And, you know, it, it felt like, who is this guy? You know, I mean, he's stepping in. Like, he's not, for lack of a better phrase, you know, Pope John Paul II became the Holy Father in 1978. I was born in 1982. I mean, this is like, I was like my grandpa. It's like, you can't, you can't be my new grandpa. Like, this doesn't work this way. And I was still very early on in seminary. And once I got into the second part, what's called theology, like the master's study of theology, Pope Benedict wrote so much of what we studied. And it's profound and so good. Like, for example, if you pick up his book, Jesus of Nazareth, I mean, he wrote that in his spare time as the Holy Father. He wrote, like, when he was on vacation. The introduction to that book 
on, and this is kind of technical language, but what he says about what's called the historical critical method and the appropriate way to use it is profound and like one of the best treatments of the subject, uh, that subject I've ever read. His writing is fantastic. It takes a lot to take in and digest. He's and he's brilliant. And that's why I say that day-by-day book with him, because it's, I mean, his teaching spans several decades. And so to kind of take it in a day at a time is really, really good. So I highly recommend that as well. Two other books I'll recommend off the top of my head. One, I know I quote it all the time. It's well worth the time to read. Orthodoxy by D.K. Chesterton. It's my favorite book of all time. Um, He sums up things incredibly well. I really recommend the Audible version read by Simon Vance because he has the British accent and he's kind of witty and I really appreciate it and I re-listen to it about once a year. Um, the, uh, the final book I'll say is actually, uh, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's fiction, um, by Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson. Just about anything he's written is good. He was an Anglican convert, uh, became a Catholic priest. I think his dad had been an Anglican bishop. Uh, but Monsignor Benson wrote several books. My favorite one, uh, it's hard to say, Come Rack, Come Rope is a fantastic book about a young priest at the time of the persecution of the church in England. The other one that's very, very good is kind of an apocalyptic, end-of-the-world type novel called Lord of the World. And Pope Francis has actually referred to it several times. Um, If you've ever heard of an author called Michael O'Brien, he wrote a book called Father Elijah. It's another apocalyptic type book. It was, I think, written probably in the mid-90s. I think. I could be wrong on it. Maybe it was early 90s, late 80s. But Lord of the World is like Father Elijah written about 100 years earlier. And honestly, I think it's better. And some of the things that Monsignor Benson sees coming, you know, over 100 years ago, it's amazing. And where we're going and how these things are happening, just this sort of like rise of the Antichrist and all this. And, it, and it's not to say like, you know, oh, predicting it. No, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's an interesting work of fiction that takes all of these Catholic principles into account. It's a fantastic read, and just like Come Rack, Come Rogue, I mean, it just makes you happy to be Catholic at the end of the day. Father Snots, huh? Yep. No, not Father. At the time, just, it was Deacon. Just, Deacon. just Snots, actually. Okay. Yeah. Like, to, like the dog from Christmas Vacation. We might have to introduce, introduce that in the office. We'll see. Uh, now, I know these questions are for Father, but because I'm sitting up here, you get stuck with some of my answers, too. I apologize about that. Um, but actually, I'm going to uh, reference a more secular book. Obviously, this is Catholic Church Theology Q&A. But this is the book that I'm like living my life by right now. Um, it's a long title, so I actually had to look it up. It's called iGen. Why today's super-connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood, and what that means for the rest of us. That was the whole title. So... Who's it, who's it by? It's by Jean Twang, I think is how you pronounce her last name. T-W-E-N-G-E. Um, she's from, oh, I can't remember, San Diego State? San Diego University? Um, and she wrote this book essentially about this next generation of youth that are becoming adults. So, you know, I grew up in the best generation ever, the millennials. Um, we all know that we love the millennials. Um, 
So, but this next generation, she is calling them iGen. A lot of people call them Generation Z, a lot of different names. But she plays off the word iGen because of the iPhone, right? The youth that are growing up today have never experienced a world without a phone in their hand. And this has been a huge radical change in how this generation has grown up. And it's a very interesting book, and it's a book that I've taken to heart in my ministry, trying to figure out, okay, how do I minister to middle schoolers? How do I minister to high schoolers and these young kids who are part of this iGen? What makes them tick? What do they like? What do they dislike? How are they viewing the world? And it's incredibly, incredibly interesting. And one point that I'll just point out, in the title where she says, uh, less rebellious, these youth are drinking underage less, they are having sex outside of marriage less. Teen pregnancy is down. They're going to parties in college less. They're even getting their driver's license later. Some teens nowadays don't even want their driver's license. And it's incredible why in the world is this happening, which is all good things, more or less, but what is causing this change? And she really digs into this, has amazing studies, amazing statistics, I know it's odd, but this is actually kind of my uh, bedside reading. Again, I'm kind of a nerd. Um, but I highly recommend anyone that's working with youth in any capacity to understand who are these youth and um, what are, who are they going to be as adults and how do we minister to them and how do we work with them. So that would be my book recommendation. Again, more of a secular brand as well. No, that's great. And I, and I think, too, I'm just, you know, I like these tangents, so I keep doing it. Uh, I was told in the seminary, you know, never stop reading. Don't become one of those priests who just like just starts watching TV because they said when you do that, you quickly become boring. And hopefully, I'm not too bad. That's why I meet with him once a week so he can tell me what I did wrong. But um, basically, it's you know, nobody wants to know you know what you watched on a particular sitcom last night. I like referencing things like The Simpsons and stuff I watched growing up, and I still occasionally watch things like The Office, although it's been off the air I think for a while. But the big thing is, I mean, for any of us, it, it, and it's, we just need to keep that you know, thirst for, for learning, for studying. And even if, you know, it's just good fiction, you know, I mean, it's, it's important. Like I said before, I mean, pick up Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Read A Tale of Two Cities. It's one of the best books ever written. And just kind of going along with what Michael just said, I just finished a book not too long ago called Planet Funny. Um, and, it, and it's by Ken Jennings, the guy who's on Jeopardy. I know, I'm like, talking about, don't watch too much TV, but uh, same sort of a thing, where it's like, we've gotten to the point now, like, we don't really belly laugh anymore, we don't have joke setups like we used to, it's like, all we have is a three second thing online that makes us go, and then we move on to the next thing, you know, it's just less satisfying all the time, less, you know, quality being put into things. One of my favorite parts of this was, uh, he said, you know, a, a grasshopper walks into a bar, and the bartender says, oh my gosh, we have a, we have a drink named after you. And the, the grasshopper goes, you have a drink named the Stanley? Which was one of the funniest things I've heard in a long time. And, which, I'm actually the bigger nerd out here, that's the whole joke at the end of the day. But, you know, like, things like that, we don't have new ones like that anymore. Isn't that funny? Like, we used to all, like, oh my gosh, you never believe the ways, but we don't. And it's like we're losing all these things, and it's all becoming like screen meme stuff. And the beautiful thing about our faith, I mean, everything ties back together. It's like the Flannery O'Connor quote about just the symbol. 
No, this isn't just a symbol. This is reality. God became man. I mean, what's going on around us is real and tangible and important. And we can't let life just sort of pass us by in this anesthetized state, just staring at stupid screens all the time. Uh, one of the best sort of like uh, dealings with that is the Disney movie WALL-E, if you've ever seen that, you know? Or, I mean, essentially it's like, here's the future. The earth is just garbage at this point, and it's fat people floating around in space looking at their screens. And, you know, no conflict, everything's fine, everything's comfortable, but that's it. And that's not what we're made for, you know? I mean, we're not here just to be spoon-fed everything. I mean, there's a lot of challenges, but that's the awesome adventure that is life, and the constant returning to the fact that Jesus Christ became one of us and is in the midst of all this with us, because he is there, reality is important and always continually exciting. So just kind of like tying that together. And so in that regard, and why I think it's important to even say this in a question, is just what do you recommend as a good book? Keep reading. Don't just let stuff be fed to you. Even when you're tired at night, I get it. I mean, I don't want to go home late at night and just, but keep reading. Even if it's something a little bit lighter. The other thing I'm reading right now is a book called Further Out and Further In. It's uh, kind of like a, an analysis of all the Chronicle of Narnia books by Joseph Pierce. It's fantastic. I really like Joseph Pierce. And it's just kind of fun to just recount all those wonderful Chronicles of Narnia books. So it's just, you know, all good stuff. Keep up, keep up the reading. Perfect. Thank you, Father. And you thought that answer was going to be a short one. Um, so since we're running out of time, um, I'm not actually going to ask you any more questions, but I'm going to ask one more thing of you. Um, and since you started on jokes, I know you told me a joke in the office the other day. Do you remember which joke I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. Would you be willing to share that joke with everyone since you started it? Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks, Father. Okay, so I really wanted to like somehow like crowbar this into a homily. Like, and, and don't get me wrong, like, I don't start my homily like, oh, what joke can I tell this week? It's not bad. But I do really like it when something actually applies. But I'll just tell you that I, I actually told a few people this in such a way as though it happened to me and it just confused them, so I won't tell it that way. But so this gentleman, um, older, older gentleman, friends of his live next door, his friend passes away, and he goes to the funeral. And no one is there who really knows that much about him. And his wife is all upset. And she says, can you please just stand up and say something about him? Can you get up and give the eulogy? And he gets up and he's just, he doesn't know what to say. And he looks around and he just says, plethora. And he sits down. And the wife leans to him and says, thanks. That means a lot. <laughs> Isn't that a great joke? <laughs> If you know what plethora means, it's just wonderful. <laughs> it was a good joke. I think so, too. And I really enjoyed it when you shared it with me. And I'm going to tell you a secret. He actually stole it from a podcast. I did. Uh, called Pines with Aquinas with Matt Pratt. He's actually referred to this podcast probably four times in his homilies. That means it's a really good podcast. And I'm also going to share your secret. I actually told him about this podcast, and you can give me all the Actually, credit. you weren't the first one. Oh, I was not. No, Father, don't, don't do this to me right you now. Were. It's I okay. just bragged about I it. Mean, I mean, you really, were. You were the first uh, one. It is a really fantastic podcast. Matt Brad, Pipes with Aquinas. Fantastic. Actually, um, you, were, you were. Oh, thanks. You I just didn't take too. your advice at first. <laughs> oh, wow, Father. So you don't even listen to me to get advice, and then you don't even credit me for it later on. 
Um, this is our wonderful relationship that we have. Um, but I would highly suggest looking at that podcast if you are driving around and doing different things. Great, great podcast. Um, and I really enjoy it. So with that, we're going to wrap up. Thank you so much for uh, being here tonight. Thank you for all the viewers at home for participating. Um, thank you for all the questions. Like I said, we will answer the rest of the questions. I think there was another two, four, six, eight, ten questions that we didn't get to. We will answer everything else, we promise. It will be in a recording. We will get it uh, out there. Um, and then we hopefully will schedule another one of these maybe in the new year, January, February. So tell your friends how much you enjoyed it. You viewers at home, uh, schedule in a vacation to come and visit us and come and join us for the next Q&A with Father Eckert. Um, and keep your eyes out for either on Facebook or e-news or out there. Um, and anyway, we, we communicate about the recording that we will answer the rest of the questions with. So Father, would you like to go ahead and close this with a prayer? I would love to. I just want to say again, thanks everybody for coming. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus. Immaculate heart of Mary. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Woo-hoo.